Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. The United States Civil War ended on April 9th, 1865. The Confederate states were officially dissolved, U.S. territorial integrity had been preserved, the institution of slavery abolished, and the beginning of the Reconstruction era was ushered in. In the subsequent years, the country would see the passage and ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution of the United States. Major political, economic, and social changes for a nation that had just witnessed the death of nearly 620,000 of its sons, brothers, husbands, and fathers. But the question remains for historians, and the debate continues today. Did the lives of former slaves really change all that dramatically? We know that racism and discrimination remained in the U.S. for decades to come, and that financial freedom was virtually unobtainable for many liberated slaves looking to start new lives. But for some, the end of the Civil War and the years that followed began remarkable, unimaginable opportunity, and for one young African-American girl whose parents had been slaves and who was now living in Oklahoma, it would mean that in a few short years, she would be one of the wealthiest people in the entire country, and that today, her story would be recounted on this episode of The Missing Chapter. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's! The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, Fries, and Sprite ultra powerful! Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's! Ba da ba ba ba! Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I am Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Phil, we got a great episode today of The Promised Land. Looking forward to uh, what you have for us, the second half here, as a really intriguing intro, I might add. Um, today, we're drinking for our, all of our fans that are obviously wondering, Phil's Coffee Ooh. from Sacramento, California, given to us by our uh, awesome friends, Kim and Blake Smith. And I'll tell you what, it's rich. Yeah. And it's yeah. dark. It's strong, and I'm on my third cup of coffee, Blake Kim. Yeah, it's uh, really good. If you if you hear his uh, heart palpitating through mm-hmm. the microphone, um, it's the coffee. So don't be don't be alarmed. But awesome cup of coffee, and the, I tell you what, the branding is great, and it's not just because 
It's called Phil's Coffee. The title of it, though, this is my this is my favorite part. It's Phil's Coffee, and it's Philharmonic. Philharmonic. Are you kidding me? Yeah. What a great way to start the episode. The, the kids in our class have loved coming in and seeing that bag out. Yeah. They get a big kick out of it. They that. love our puns and they love our coffee. And uh, hopefully you'll love the episode today. So, Phil, cheers to a good cup of coffee. Cheers, Phil. You to know, a good episode. Hey, season three is off to a great start. We've gotten great feedback from everybody. And we would encourage you, if you, if you like something, if you want to hear more of something uh, in season three, reach out to us. We have some awesome interviews coming yes. up, too, uh, coming down the pike. Yeah, very exciting. But for today... I know nothing, as we always say. I know nothing about this. That part has not changed since day one. Absolutely. So just like every other listener that's listening in for the first time, promised land, take it away. I appreciate that, Phil. And and before I get started, October 15th uh, is kind of a special day in our house. And I want to wish our our youngest uh, son, Nathan, a very happy birthday. He turns four today. It's hard to believe. Yeah. And and mom and and I love him so much. And Andrew, uh, his big brother, loves him. And he's off to a great start with... uh, with his pre-K, and he's just, he's a, a very sweet boy. Lovable. So kid. I wanted to throw out a happy birthday to you, Nate. Um, and, and yeah, I think, you know what, this story, Phil, you and I continually say to one another, I, I, I how have we not heard this story? Mm-hmm. And what a great, inspiring story it is. Yeah. So I, I hope someone takes it away. It's not just a story of history, but you, you come away from today's episode you know, maybe feeling inspired and feeling a little bit better about your day and, and your work week coming up. Absolutely. So born as the daughter of a freedman in 1902, Sarah Rector rose from humble beginnings. She and her family were African-American members of the Muscogee Creek Nation who lived in a modest cabin in the predominantly black town of Taft, Oklahoma, which at the time, 1902, was still considered Indian territory. So not really a reservation, but still technically territory of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Wow. So that they're on their territory. Now, following the U.S. Civil War in the mid-19th century, Rector's parents, who were formerly enslaved by the Creek tribe members, were entitled to land allotments under legislation called the Dawes Act Allotment of 1887. And I never knew this, Phil, that under the Dawes Plan Allotment Act, Hundreds of black children called Creek Freedmen Miners were each granted 160 acres of land. Really? As the Indian Territory became integrated with Oklahoma Territory that would eventually form the state of Oklahoma in 1907. So actually the miners, the children of freed slaves, were each given a plot of land. So just, under that legislation. All right. So I'm blown away already because right away when you said Dawes, I, I immediately went to the Dawes plan right. of the 1920s, which is going to resolve some of the issues of World War One. But Absolutely. we're talking Dawes Act. Right. Mid 19th century. Right. And, okay. You know, you, you, you start to see, too, that by 1907, I think it's interesting because we're trying to uh, maybe compensate for some of the ills that, that yep. the country did during slavery. But at the same time, you're doing that by taking land away yeah. from the Native Americans, whose wow. land it was too. So it's so you're really just, it's interesting. Yeah, you're just doing the distribution portion, of right? It. You're really not actually resolving it at all, right? And you know, I don't want to I don't want to stray too far, you know, off of off of this story. But it just got me thinking that how unique and how pretty remarkable this time period is because 160 acres, <laughs> I know. 
is a ton of land and you're going to, you have it to give away now to each miner of freed slaves. And, and really just a reminder, free land of any type was pretty remarkable, especially if you were a poor person living in Europe during this time. Right. You know, most land in places like England were estates. They were passed down from one generation to the next. Any chance of earning your own parcel to support your own family on, you know, unless you were nobility or aristocratic was rare. Yeah. Right. So, you know, this opportunity, however, opened many doors, not just to European immigrants who are already looking to the ever expanding Western U.S. frontier to start a new lease on life. But now enter the offspring of former slaves and the clamoring for this free land, the prospects that it brought with it really compounded the competition dramatically. So you have all these people. It's just what land meant. And we've talked about this a right. lot in our classes, too. I mean, it, it's different for us now because, you know, we're, we're looking at pieces of land now to 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 build a house. Mm -hmm. And there's land that are, you know, a third of an acre, you know, a quarter of an acre, which is not it's not horrible in some of the uh, some of the suburbs of some, mm -hmm. of these, some of these bigger cities. But when you think about that, that scope of one hundred and sixty acres, your entire livelihood exists on right. that land. So it's a way bigger deal than we see it today. Right. And you know what, Phil, along those same lines is. You know, land historically has meant the, you know, uh, a dream being met. You right, own your, right. your first house and you, what does, what does that mean? That plot of land is yours. Like right. it's, it's your opportunity to have a family and support yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And here, if, you know, if I'm a, the, the, the daughter of a freed slave or a, a poor European immigrant coming to the United States, that land is theirs for you. How, how amazing that is. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the problem, though. The land was very often very rocky, consisted of poor, you know, infertile soil, just because that's kind of what a good portion of Oklahoma's territory was at this point. But also because, listen, we're not just going to hand over beautiful <laughs> land. Right. Right. So we're giving you land. But the caveat is it's not great. It's not great. So, you know, very often it was difficult to grow crops, um, much less be self-sufficient or provide for a family for that matter. But this is where the story of a young Sarah Rector takes a very unique and a very, very surprising turn. Okay. As it would turn out, Sarah Rector's allotment from the Creek Indian Nation was located in the middle of what would eventually become known as the Glen Pool. G-L-E-N-N, Glen Pool. Okay. Now, this name has nothing to do with water, but rather, Phil, the oil fields. That it happened to possess. Oh my God. <laughs> Soon after the government allotted this particular plot to Sarah, it was initially assessed at a value of $556.50. Okay. Now, this is great, but the catch here is that despite being given these parcels of land, you also inherited the tax that goes along with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, in the case of Sarah Rector and her family, they're now expected to pay the almost $30 annual property tax if they expected to hold on to the land and not lose it to the bank. Strapped for cash, Rector's father begins leasing his daughter's parcel to a major oil company in February of 1911 to help offset the property tax. And good news, all right, you have oil on your parcel, yeah, turns into great news. Two years later, the Rector family's fortunes took a major turn when independent oil driller, a guy by the name of B.B. Jones, produces a gusher 
on Sarah's lamp. Now, a gusher is, is kind of exactly what you would, you would think it would be. It's an oil well that rages out of control, sending a column of oil into the sky. And although it's remembered as a good thing, like in the case of Sarah Rector's, gushers weren't necessarily good. In fact, they were often you know, difficult to harness. They might lead to an unstable extraction shaft. Regardless, the gusher that B.B. Jones trapped, or excuse me, tapped into on the Rector family parcel that day would ultimately bring in 2,500 barrels or 105,000 gallons of oil oh my God. per day. Per day? Per day. According to Tanya Bolden, author of the book Searching for Sarah Rector, the richest black girl in America, Sarah, the 10-year-old African-American girl, the daughter of former slaves, began earning more than $300 a day in 1913, which equates roughly to between $7,000 and $8,000 by today's standards. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, she generated in a single month, October of 1913, a single month's revenue, $11,567. Oh Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. All right, Phil. So as we're back from the break, I will uh, admit that I probably did something that the listeners are doing right now. Hopefully they're not driving and doing this at the same time. But you left us with the cliffhanger of $11,000 in 1913, right? Mm -hmm. So I immediately go to Google and I figure out that $11,000, actually $10,000 in 1913. So this number that I'm going to give you is actually a little higher. But $10,000 equivalent in 1913 to 2022 standards has the purchasing power of about $299,000 today. That's amazing. So yeah. you're, you're talking, she's getting uh, essentially the 2022 equivalent of $300,000 right. for her land. For her land. That is unbelievable. And, and you know, Phil, even in 1913, news of this proportion... I mean, is, is going to spread quickly. Of course. You know, it wasn't like people didn't overnight hear about her story and know who Sarah Rector was. Her notoriety ballooned just as quickly as her wealth had. By September of 1913, uh, the Kansas City Star newspaper published the headline, quote, millions to a black girl, Sarah Rector, 10-year-old, has income of $300 a day from oil. And in January 1914, the same newspaper wrote, Oklahoma girl with $15,000 a month gets many proposals. No. Four white men in Germany want to marry the black child that they might share her fortune. What? Meanwhile, the Savannah Tribune in Georgia writes, oil well produces neat income, black girls $112,000 a year. And then the final, the, the other newspaper I found dubbed her the richest black girl in the world. Wow. Which 
I mean, she very well might sense. have. Yeah. yeah. Her fame became widespread. She received numerous requests for loans, money gifts. All right. And in addition to the four kind of creepy marriage proposals. Yeah. that's. But this is where things got even more bizarre. And it has to do really with the laws that were in the books at this point in the early 20th century. So at the time, a law required Native Americans, black adults and children. And it doesn't specify minority children, children of any kind who were citizens of Indian territory and who had significant property and money to be assigned, Phil, well-respected white guardians. Hmm. And as a result, Sarah Rector's guardianship switched from her parents, her legitimate parents, to a white man named T.J. Porter. Now, concerned with her well-being and her white, quote-unquote, financial guardian, early NAACP leaders fought to protect her and her fortune. So again, I go back to the fact that Sarah Rector is very well known at this time. So right. people are very up to speed as to what they're doing, how she's being treated. Um, and her story is widespread. Unfortunately, the right people were aware of what was going on and were moving to defend and protect her best interests. So in 1914, the newspaper, the Chicago Defender, actually published an article that read more like a smear campaign. Oh, geez. Claiming that her estate was being mismanaged by her ignorant parents and that she was uneducated, dressed in rags, and lived in an unsanitary shanty. National African-American leaders, listen to these names, such as Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, became concerned about her welfare. None of the allegations were true. Rector and her siblings went to school in Taft, which was a neighboring all-black town, they lived in a modern five-room cottage. They owned an automobile. And that same year, Rector had enrolled in the Children's House, a boarding school for teenagers at Tuskegee Institution in Alabama. Wow. So she was actually doing very well off. But she was trying to be pretty much, like I said, smeared to force them in a position to have this quote-unquote white guardian take over the money. Oh, my gosh. So as a result, the wealth was so vast that the Rector family was indeed allowed to oversee it. All right. And you have to really go back and, and thank these, um, you know, these uh, people in the NAACP, like the, right. the likes of Booker T. Washington to, to help her um, maintain that. By the time she turned 18, Sarah was worth an estimated $1 million, about $11 million today. Not only did she oversee her own wealth, by all accounts, she did an amazing job investing her money too. Really? So for being somebody who was so young, um, she owned stocks and bonds. She owned uh, a boarding house. She invested in a bakery and a restaurant in Muskogee, uh, excuse me, Oklahoma, and purchased an additional 2,000 acres of land. So she pretty much was diversifying well. her portfolio yeah. here. Yeah. She eventually left Tuskegee with her family, moved to Kansas City, Missouri, where she, she bought, by all accounts, a grand home that still stands today. And I'm going to go back to historian and author Tanya Bolden, who said, there, all right, in Kansas City, the rectors eventually moved into a home that was a far cry from that weather-whipped two-run cabin in which Sarah began her life. This home, uh, which was a place of a stately stone house, became known as the Rector Mansion. Fast forward a little bit. In 1922, Sarah marries Kenneth Campbell, who at that time was the second African-American to own an auto dealership in the United States. The couple would go on to have three sons. And they were recognized essentially as local royalty. 
They drove expensive cars and entertained elites at their home, the likes of Joe Lewis, Duke Ellington, oh my Count Bassey, a, a jazz pianist at their home. Sarah and Kenneth divorced, however, in 1930, and Sarah Rector would remarry in 1934. Now, and I... This bothers me, Phil, and I know it's going to bother you because I feel like, and our listeners are probably going to agree, here it comes. Not all of these feel-good stories have good endings, the endings we would like to see them have. Don't do this to us. I know. I was just about to say. I know. I, I was know. just about to say, this is a feel-good story, Nathan's And, and I'm birthday. headed there. I know. Not all history has silver linings. Including right. Sarah Rector's. Oh, God. So, sadly, Sarah lost most of her wealth during the Great Depression. So, I don't think it was rare. I mean, the Great Depression was the Great Depression, right? right? So, and I think a lot of people in her position with just unbelievable amounts of wealth saw that money gone. Um, and she was no exception. And she also had investments right. in the stock market right. when it crashed. And and I'll get to that because she did lose some. When she died at age 65 on July 22nd, 1967, she was left really with only some work working oil wells. Um, in the Midwest, and a couple of her real estate holdings. That's what she had, wow. had lost or I think was forced to sell off to survive the Great Depression. But I will point out her legacy was cemented in history. And the model she set for my, not only minorities, but women in the United States mm -hmm. would certainly extend far beyond her monetary wealth and accomplishments. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>